Hebrews 12, Hebrews 12. I want to speak to you this morning. It's my privilege to do so. I thank you for the invite on endurance. How do you, how do you run the race for the long term? For the long term. Uh, I'm privileged to be in my 50th year since I was starting seminary. And um, just a couple months now, it would, I was actually beginning seminary. And I look back, oh, there's been trials, but there's been wonderful times. And I want to say to you today that God will try his servants, but there's nothing, nothing in this life like serving him in sacred ministry. It's an unspeakable joy. It's a heavy burden? Absolutely. It's a time of trials many times? Absolutely. But a faithful minister of the gospel wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. You persevere in your student years. You accept a call somewhere. You get situated there. You pour your whole heart into it. Of course, it's like a family. You're going to have your ups and downs. But the good news is you never, never have to go through a midlife crisis saying, is my life worthwhile? You're dealing with never dying souls. You've got the most important job in the world. My dad used to always say to us as kids, if you become a minister of the gospel, you have a vocatio, a vocation that is more important than living in the White House because you're dealing with never dying souls. So my call to you, brothers, is to run the race set before you. Endure, endure. Now, how do you do that? Well, that's what the author to the Hebrews tells us in verses one and two, especially. I'll just read the first three verses. I just really want to expound to you verses one and two this morning. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. Let's pray. Lord, bless this chapel. Perhaps there are men here whose hands are hanging down even now. And Lord, I pray that they would be lifted up, encouraged to run the race, looking to Jesus, the best race ever and be faithful ministers of the gospel, could it be for decades or until thou dost return on the clouds? Bless this chapel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Winston Churchill gave a lot of graduation addresses in his life. Some of them were interminably long, but one of the shortest ones was one that became the most famous. And in the midst of it, he simply said this, never, never, never give up. 
That's actually the message of the book of Hebrews to the Hebrew Christians. The message is keep on keeping on. I once had to do a a conference address on an overview of the book of Hebrews. And I I read it through the book a couple times. And then the third time I read through it, suddenly it dawned on me. There are so many verses about persevering, about enduring. So I went back and I read it again and I counted them. 96 verses in 13 chapters that are basically saying, don't give up, keep clinging to the high priest. He'll help you through, run the race with full assurance and hope. You see, it's one thing to begin the Christian life. It's another thing to continue. The wonder, the wonder of the gospel is not just being saved. It's being kept saved as well. You know, we talk about Pentecost, just to take one example. And we preach on Acts 2, verse 4, and rightly so, the great Pentecostal texts. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking with tongues. But you know, Acts 2, 42, is every bit as great a wonder. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and in prayers. The ministry isn't a romantic thing that you feel this kind of nostalgic romance when you finally get ordained into the ministry and you begin. When you enter the ministry, it's a lifetime call. You, you, you've got to endure. You've got to run the race. You've got to keep on keeping on. But how, how can you do that? How can you do that? How can you persevere in ministry when things go against you or your best friend betrays you? As David says, he's lifted up his heel against me. How can you press on when you feel weak and tired and emotionally and spiritually and you're overwhelmed and you're tempted to give up and you're tempted to say with Asaph, verily I've cleansed my hands, my heart, in vain. How do we endure? Not just in the ministry, but in the Christian life in general. Well, the answer is, It's profound, yet simple. We endure as Christ endured when he was tempted to surrender in the battle of spiritual warfare. We walk as he walked, by his grace, by his strength. That's what Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 is all about. Enduring. Running with patience. The best race ever. By looking to Jesus, setting aside sin. So I want to look at three simple thoughts with you. It's mission, the the mission of endurance. It's manner, how do you do it? And it's motives, what keeps you motivated to keep on keeping on? Well, the author of Hebrews writes to Jewish Christians who are being pressured to return to the ceremonies, the sacrifices, the customs of Judaism. He vehemently, denounces such a return as apostasy from Christ, a denial of the grace of the gospel. And for that reason, the book of Hebrews progresses through cycles of threats against those who are thinking about turning away from Christ, followed by glorious and majestic statements 
of the surpassing excellency and superiority of Christ over all the ordinances of the worship of Judaism. The book of Hebrews is Christocentric, isn't it? it? It presents Christ as the end, the fulfillment, the sole purpose of the entire Old Testament priesthood, worship, and sacrifices. But you see, the Hebrew Christians were tempted to give up because if a job opening was available and 10 people applied and five of them were Hebrew Christians, none of them would get the job. It would always go to the non-Christian. Some of their pastors were being thrown in jail. It wasn't easy. They were being persecuted. And th their fellow Jews were saying, come, come on back. Come on back to Judaism with all its ceremonies and rituals, all its color and drama, rather than just a guy standing behind a pulpit proclaiming some words in ordinary dress. You see, they tried to make it look like New Testament Christianity was, was boring and Old Testament Christianity or Old Testament Judaism was exciting. And the author then writes with one purpose. Don't give up. Don't give up. You've got more than they had in the Old Testament. Endure, endure, endure. And actually all three verses of the opening of Hebrews 12 have that word in them in the original Greek. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus who endured the cross, for consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. So this, this is the mission, to endure, to keep running all the way to the end. Now the picture being painted here is not the picture of sprinting. It's rather the picture, much like the, the French bikeathon, which seems to go on forever, for weeks. It's that picture of the Greek Colosseum where runners would have a baton in their hand and they'd run for hours and hours and hours and then pass the baton on to someone else. It would go through the night and through the day. It was a long race. It was a marathon. And the idea of a marathon is that you run at a good clip but you don't sprint. You don't wear yourself out in a moment. You keep steady. You, you run deliberately, steadily, actively, every day, using the means of grace, the spiritual disciplines, reading and searching the scriptures every day, engaging in personal intercessory prayer every day, reading sound literature every day, fellowshipping with the saints every day, Sabbath-keeping every week, living antithetically, to this world. So the Christian life is a steady race of endurance. Endurance, in the Oxford Dictionary, says holding up, remaining, continuing, even under pain, without flinching. What a great definition of the Christian life, looking to Jesus. So this is what endurance is all about, the author is saying, to keep hoping and trusting in the Lord, even when everything seems to go against us. Job says, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. That's what you want to do. That's who you want to be. And I want to tell you something about long-term ministry. Do you know that when you're under the deepest trials 
in your own life is usually when your ministry is the most fruitful. And it's also when people are watching you the closest to see if Christianity is, is worth its salt. And so the great call is a double call, I would say. May I say it that way? A double call to ministers who are being watched with, with double intensity. Endure. Show in times of trial that Christianity is worth its salt. Okay, you got the picture. And you say, that's what I want to do. But now, how do I do it? Well, that's, that's point two. The manner. The manner. Verses 1 and 2 give us two ways of doing it, a negative way and a positive way. The first is the negative. We are to rid ourselves of sins and hindrances. We're to lay aside the sin that so easily besets us. Now, remember, a picture is being painted here of a Greek coliseum. There's, there's, there's fans in the stands and there's runners on the racetrack. And so the author says, like, like a runner who goes out on the racetrack, takes off every stitch of clothing he doesn't need, gets rid of all the stuff he's carrying, and runs with no encumbrances. So a Christian is called to run the race all the way to the end. So sin here is compared, if I may say it this way, as an encumbrance, as something that slows you down, trips you up. Uh, you've, you've got to lay it aside. How foolish a runner would be to wear heavy clothing and carry all kinds of paraphernalia while running a race. So sin, you see, is, is a monster. Sin is anti-God. Sin drags you down. Sin takes your eyes off of your Savior. It interrupts your, your relationship with God. Sin is anti-God. Sin seeks to dethrone God. It makes us worldly, selfish, proud, unbelieving. You can't be a faithful minister of the gospel and not hate sin. You've got to hate sin because God hates sin, not just the consequences of sin. You want to please God, you see. So I'm not talking now just about uh, gross sins that we all understand are absolutely wicked and have no place in a minister's life. But we need to look at sins that so easily beset us. And that may be different in your life than mine. So Commentators actually give us three different views on these words, the sin which so easily besets us. Some of them say, well, that sin is the mother's sin of all sins, unbelief. And that's why you have the whole chapter before it with all the heroes of faith. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Joseph. By faith, by faith. So he's saying, if all these Old Testament saints lived by faith, and they didn't even see the cross yet. What are you Hebrew Christians doing? You've got the cross behind you. You can see the full gospel, and you're going to give up when they didn't give up and walk by faith? Lay aside that sin that besets you, that wicked sin of unbelief, that mother sin of all sins. That's one interpretation. Very legit. Another interpretation is the sin. 
which so easily besets. The us is actually not in the original. In other words, what our forefathers called bosom sin or darling sin or besetting sin, you know, you, you have your own sin that you struggle with, right? That you can easier fall into than other sins. I had, a, I had a man come to me some, some years ago now, but I'll, I'll never forget the visit. He came in the room crying, and he just had this bosom sin. He, oh, he was struggling. He was sighing. He was groaning. He was weeping. And, and he wouldn't tell me what the sin was for a little while. And I finally said, well, what is it? What, what are you struggling with? He said, I just can't stop listening to country music. <laughs> I'm going, country music? That's not my besetting sin. But, you know, I couldn't show him that on my facial expression, of course. We have to work with that as a besetting sin. And maybe, maybe your besetting sin is something that is um, well accepted. Maybe your besetting sin is uh, worry or, or love of things or cares of this life or relationships or professional duties or recreational pursuits or in my life, I was, I was a basketball player when I was young, and I, but it became an idol for me. I actually had to give it up. I had to give up my pride and just say no to it. It was getting in the way. It was tripping me up. That may not trip you up at all. But whatever sin entangles you in running a life of a white-hot flame of joy for Christ, whatever drags you down, maybe it's too much time on... Uh, Facebook, I, I don't know what it is, but whatever it is, you see, lay aside that sin. John Owen said sin is always at our elbow, and we just move a little bit, it pops out, and, it, and it's right in front of us again, and uh, you've got to do one of two things, he says, either fight or flight. You either got to fight sin head on, or if you're weak in that area, you got to flee it, you got to run from it. Don't tolerate sin. Don't delight in sin. Don't speak lightly of your past sins, even if they're forgiven. Hate sin with holy hatred. Now, that's not always easy to do. But then there's a third view. And the third view just says, sin, which so easily besets all sin, all sin, not just unbelief, not just your bosom sin, lay aside all sin because sin will always trip you up. Take up the cross, deny yourself, and follow God and hate sin. That's, that's our imperative, to run from sin, to lay it aside, to, to think in terms of Romans 6.11. Reckon yourself to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Because sin is not your life. You're a new creation. Christ is your life. Sin is a thievish, foreign intruder. Don't let it rest in the home of your new heart. I had an elder who's now in glory who used to say to me, his father always said to him and his siblings, children, if you're a Christian, you ain't got no business sinning. Ain't got no business sinning. You're to walk in the ways of God. You're to walk in the ways of God. I was talking with an 85-year-old widow, Welsh woman, 
And uh, she told me this. She was a feisty Christian, by the way. And uh, she told me this amazing story that three young men broke into her home and uh, tied her up, bound her around the eyes, tied her to a chair. They began to steal all kinds of things. And finally, she heard them banging around with her grandmother's heirloom china, and that was too much for her. And she said, you thieves, you don't belong here. God will bring you on the day of judgment into condemnation. And one thief sat down beside her and started commiserating about his deprived childhood. And then the other two started talking with him and arguing and mocking him. And the three got in an argument, and they left without the china. Happy ending to the story. But I was thinking later, you see, she said to them, you've got no business being here. You don't belong here. That's the way we should, we should think about sin. I, I can, I'm devoted to Christ. I've been saved from sin. I must hate sin. I must push it away. I must, I, if it stands on my doorstep and I open the door and see it, I must slam the door shut. As Bunyan would say in Holy War, don't let sin in your eye gate and don't let sin in your ear gate. Those are the two main gates through which sin comes. Lay it aside. Run the race. Now, that's the negative. The, by the way, I think all three interpretations are correct. <laughs> I, th I think we've got to do all three. We've got to kill our bosom sin, put a sword through it. We've got to hate unbelief and depart from it. And, we, and we've got to have zero tolerance room, no open window space for any sin of any kind. Reckon yourself dead unto sin and alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. But... The negative is never the primary way of running the race. It's an important way. The primary way is the positive. Looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus. Confessing Him. Appropriating forgiveness from Him by the grace of the Spirit. Learning to live by faith in Him and by Him and through Him and to Him and out of Him. As a forgiven sinner. So running the race. Looking unto Jesus the author and the finisher of our faith. So he's saying the primary way of running this race is to look to him who ran it before us, who endured it perfectly. He can give you the strength to run it behind him, looking unto him. He's both our model runner and he's our coach. And so just as the Old Testament saints live by faith in the promises of God, so we are surrounded by the Old Testament saints as a cloud of witness in our stands. And their faith ought to encourage us to run the race set before us. And so he, he encourages us and reminds us that Jesus' endurance, both in verse 2 and 3, and our endurance are intimately connected. Jesus is our author of faith, our beginner. He's our finisher of faith, and he's everything in between. That's the beauty of Jesus. He's, he's everything to us. He's our uniquely qualified supplier of faith and our sustainer of faith. He evokes and stimulates our faith. He's the pioneer and perfecter of our salvation. And he will not allow a single one of his children to fall to the side of the road because he's the finisher of the faith of his runners. 
from origin to completion. I was blessed with very God-fearing parents, and my mother lived to be 92. When she was 90, she began to get dementia. She got it fairly substantially before she died, and I was reading her for Revelation 21, trying to get her to focus on heaven six weeks before she died. And uh, I said, Mother, do you ever think about heaven? She said, oh, I'm too tired to think about it. I go, oh, okay. I got to verse, what is it, five or six, that uh, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I said, Mother, do you know, do you know what that means? And I thought, oh, that's a foolish question. Of course she doesn't. Of course she doesn't. She doesn't know my name. All of a sudden, she got a flash of insight. She said, doesn't that mean that Jesus is the beginning of our salvation and the end and everything in between? She, she did a little eisegesis added to the text there. I go, yes, mother. That's it. It's a better answer than I would have given you. It was great. So even in a mental state of decline, that awareness of Christ was there. Isn't that a great way to live? That Christ is so deeply embedded in you as your model runner, as your coach, as the author, as the finisher of your faith. This is the way to run. Keep looking to Jesus. When I was in high school, I, I, I ran track. And uh, I, I still remember our coach saying, don't look at the runners beside you as you're running, especially as you're getting close to the finish line. You just look at me. I'll be standing at the end of the race. Run for me. Run for me, he said. Because if you come around that last curve and you look at the guy next to you, you're going to lose half a step and it may cost you the race. Look to me. Let me motivate you. And he did motivate us. He was a strong personality. You see, that's how we ought to be motivated when we run the race. And so that leads me to the, to the third thought. Exactly how does Jesus motivate us? And I'd like to say there are two ways. First is his own example. And I want to break that down into four thoughts here. And then we get motivated by the fans in the stands as well. So first the example of Christ. Four things here. Notice what verse 2 goes on to say. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who, what, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. These, every one of these phrases is a motivation, a motivation to endure, to endure through seminary, to endure in ministry, to endure to the end. So what are these four things? Well, number one, we're to be motivated by what he endured. We're to look to him because he endured the cross. He endured the cross, far bigger cross than we will ever have to endure, no matter how many troubles we have in the ministry. My God, my God, a cry of dereliction. Why hast thou forsaken me? See, when God seems to push us away with one hand, he's secretly drawing us with the other in the midst of our afflictions. But with Jesus, it was as if he was pushing him away with both hands. No one has ever ever endured the cross like Jesus. We at best have the light end, the non-meritorious end of the cross to become more conformed to his image. But he, oh, he endured the 
cross. No grace extended to him in those moments. No favor shown. No comfort administered. No heavens breaking open. This is my beloved son. No part of the cup of wrath removed for our sin, bearing our sin. God seemed pleasant, present only as one displeased, as bearing down upon his own son with profound wrath. Every Every detail of the cross declares the irrationality, the heinousness, the dread character of sin. And yet, Christ endured the cross. How that should motivate us. If he died for you, can't you at least live for him? It ought to motivate everything about your ministry. You're a hell-worthy sinner, so am I. But he endured the cross for us? This is incredible. The gospel is really incredible. Oh, Hebrew Christians, whatever you're enduring right now, it's very small compared to that. Be motivated to run the race and endure your small crosses. As Paul says it, our our light afflictions, our light afflictions are not to be compared with the weight of the glory to come. Brother, don't let your hands hang down. Run the race looking to Jesus who endured the cross for you. Second motivation. It's not what he endured only, but what he rejoiced in. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. The joy, that's amazing. That's amazing. What was his joy? Well, the joy that was set before him was the joy of his own homecoming. The joy of reunion with the Father. The joy of being crowned with honor and glory and having all things put under his feet. The joy of bringing many sons to glory. The joy of saying, here am I, Father. And if you're a believer, you're in the group. Here am I, Father. And all those whom thou hast given me, all those. I have, I have lost none. What a joy set before him. There's no empty chairs in heaven, brothers. Every place will be filled. He will be totally successful. Oh, the joy that was set before him. That ought to motivate us. Because that joy will be our joy. He's the firstborn among many brethren. We will rejoice in him forever. It will be our joy to gaze upon his face forever. What a joy awaits a Christian minister. I had three individuals in the last three, four weeks come to me in different cities and different places and tell me how God used something that I said or I wrote and for their conversion. And it was, every time I just felt this joy welling up in me, it brings tears to my eyes. God would use you as a sinner, right? For someone else's salvation. But in heaven, you're going to hear a lot that you never heard on earth. Oh, the joy of of, of having Christ at the center and the joy of fellowshipping with the saints and the joy of realizing in glory that God has used you, sinful you, for the eternal salvation of other sinners. Endure, brother. Don't give up. Don't resign. Resign. And go the distance. Run the race to the end. Be motivated by what Christ rejoiced in, the salvation of his own. And then third, be motivated by what he despised. Notice what the text says, despising the shame, despising the shame. Do you have any idea? I don't think we do. Of the shame of dying on the cross alive. 
naked? The creator of the ends of the earth hanging there naked? Soldiers at the foot taking the one thing he still possessed in this world, his robe, and casting lots for it? And people mocking him all around? Come down from the cross, and if he did, salvation would be lost. He endured to the end. He endured to the end. He endured to the bitter, bitter end and was not ashamed. Even his mothers walked by with their little kids on that main thoroughfare going out of Jerusalem and pointed to those three men on the cross and said, don't you ever be like those awful, awful men. He was shamed. It was a shameful, not just a painful and an accursed death to die in the tree. It was a shameful death. He despised the shame because he's doing the will of his father. There will be a minority of people that will try to shame you in the ministry. Don't live by the fear of man. Live by the fear of God. John Brown gives the most beautiful definition of the fear of God I've ever read. He said the fear of God is, is, is loving fearing the smiles of God more than the smiles of men and the frowns of God more than the frowns of men. On the day of judgment, you don't stand before other people to give an account. You stand before your Savior. He's going to ask you, were you faithful to the end in your ministry for me? And then fourthly, we get motivated not only by his um, not being moved by shame, but we get motivated by what he's doing right now. Look at the end of verse 2. And is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. What is he doing? Well, Hebrews 7.25 says, he ever lives to make intercession for us. That is one of the most encouraging texts in the whole Bible. Do you understand what that means? ever lives to make intercession for us. That means there's never a moment he's not interceding for you. By his simple presence in heaven, by his blood that is spread out in heaven, and at times of great need, by his actual verbal intercessions for you. He's an infinite God. He remembers all of his people at once. He's the God of the one and the many. But he also remembers each one of you, each one of us, if we're believers as if we were his only child. And what a comfort that is in the ministry when you feel like nobody understands, when you feel at times in self-pity like no one's ever had to face so much rejection, no one's ever had to go through what you're going through right now. No, no, no. He was tempted in all points like as you are, and he's interceding for you right now, and his prayers are always successful. Be motivated by his intercessions. Even when you can hardly pray, you can hardly get the words out. You're so distressed. You're so overwhelmed. Just say, Lord Jesus, thou art interceding for me. Thou art my strength. I will keep running the race. Even when I think I cannot go one more step, Jesus having loved his own, loved them to the end. So I will run to the end by thy strength. That's a fourfold motivation from Christ. And then finally, there is the motivation of the witness of the saints. The witness of the saints. Go back to the beginning of verse 1. Wherefore, we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. I want to say this to you. They had a great cloud of witnesses. All those Hebrews 11 heroes. But you know what? 
We've got thousands more. We've got the New Testament saints in our stands. We've got all, all of the faithful in 2,000 years of church history in our stands. I don't know how many books your library has, but we've got 100,000 back in Grand Rapids. And uh, so many of them are about God's faithfulness to his people. So many of them are written by people, uh, people that Luther said, my, most of my best friends are dead ones. They're sitting on my shelves. You see, they're, they're in our stands by their writings, by how they've ministered to us. Uh, the reformers, the Puritans, the post-Puritans. But what about the people around you right now? What about people in your local church? They're in your stands. They're encouraging you. What about a God-fearing father or mother has passed away? They're in your stands. Be faithful. Follow the example of the God-fearing. Walk with the holy. Look for those who are more holy than you are and imitate them. I believe in the communion of saints. We are privileged today, brothers. We've got more people in our stands than people ever had before. They're all cheering us on, as it were, saying, run the race to the end. Keep on keeping on. But also those very near and dear to us are in our stands. My wife is in my stands. Sometimes I'm driving to church and feel like I can't preach. Can't preach. Sometimes I, I give $5,000 to preach, and sometimes I give $5,000 not to preach. Maybe it's four or five times a year. It's not often. But I get a little quiet when we're driving to church. She'll look at me. Uh, you, you, you got it again, don't you? Yeah. Who am I? Who am I to be the mouthpiece of God? Have I really plumbed the depths of this text? Feel inadequate? Who can preach the fullness of God's word? Just overwhelming. All I can pray at those times is, Lord, just help me, help me. And then she looks at me, and I love this, I love this. She just reaches over and she puts her hand on my arm. She says, honey, God will help you one more time. Oh, one more time. One more time. She's in my stance. You see, who, what runners are you encouraging? You're in their stance. At the same time, you're a runner, figuratively. We are to encourage others to run the race, but we're to run it ourselves, and we need encouragers as well. That's the beauty of the ministry. You will have a certain people, in, it'll be a remnant, well, you'll have a certain group of people in your ministry that will encourage you amazingly. Again and again and again. Treasure those people. Love those people. Keep running the race all the way, all the way to the end. And consider how many people would be deeply wounded if you fell. If you became a blight on the cause of God, what a tragedy that would be. Oh, don't, don't flirt with sin. Don't stop running the race. Keep on looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. And one day, 
you'll be brought home. You'll be brought home. As Samuel Rutherford said, my fairest Lord Jesus will stand with a soft cloth at the gate of celestial bliss to wipe away every last tear from my eye. And as you come down that road into glory, I'm speaking a bit figuratively, maybe not totally figuratively, and you walk into the gates of pearly bliss, there'll be tens thousands times ten thousands of saints and angels on that highway side to welcome you home, to welcome you home. When President Gerald Ford died, he was a Grand Rapids boy. We were in Grand Rapids. We joined the many hundreds of families on the highway side, both sides, to watch the hearse go by from the airport to the Gerald Ford Museum. Little boy on the other side of the highway had a sign above his head. He was waving it. It was bigger than he was. And it just said, he was joy, joyful, he was happy. Welcome home, President Ford. And I thought, wow, how can he be so happy to welcome home a dead body? But you see, you won't be dead. Your body will be reunited with your soul. And the whole man will come down, come down that highway, as it were, and on both sides, the saints and the angels will cry out, welcome home, sinner, saved by grace. Welcome home to everlasting glory with the Lord. You've run the race, you've finished the course. Welcome home forever to be with Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, help us to endure. Help us to run the race. Help us not to be sucked in by the world's opinions, this poor, perishing world, but to be grounded in the scriptures, the written word, which tells us of the living word, the Son of God. Help us to run the race, setting aside sin, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our precious faith. Bless these men. Bless this, this uh, seminary, bless the university, bless the church, bless each man's family. Help us to be steady and run the race to the end. In Jesus' name, amen.